Today we are lucky. We live in a society this, that, that persecution doesn't cause us here in Canada or North America to spend time in jail or is necessarily a threat to our well-being. The church and other areas of our world, though, it, they face that type of persecution. Their very lives are on the line. And the common example for that is the church in China. And we hear so often that they have to meet in underground churches for fear of their lives that might be thrown in prison. Their lives might be taken away. You might remember the news stories from a while back when ISIS was taking a run for it. And believers were being killed for their faith. And although we don't face that type of persecution here today, our society might slowly be moving towards that. And so we need to begin by asking two questions this morning. And one of them we're going to answer later and it's kind of going to be a little bit backwards. You think that we would answer the first question, but we're not going to this morning. So the first question I have for you is, can you define the gospel? Okay, the gospel simply defined begins with God. He is holy. He made us in his image. Then there's man. Man sinned and fell away from God, separating God, us from God. And then uh, God sent his son, Christ, to die on the cross for our sins And finally, the response, we need to repent and turn to Christ. If you can define the gospel, that is great. That is awesome. And we're going to define it more in depth later this morning. Um, But the second question I have for you is, if you can define the gospel, how important is it to you? Are you living a life that is gospel-focused, keeping the cross at the very center of all things, despite what our society is trying to force us to believe? Do you stand firm within the truth of the pages of God's word? Or are you easily swayed to renounce your faith and simply go with the world because things are easier that way? Now, you might be on the other side of things where you're very firm in your faith and your beliefs and nothing's gonna cause you to sway, where regardless of circumstances, you are going to stand firm in the truth because you have a fear of God and not a fear of man. So I'm gonna ask you that question again. How important is the gospel to you? When everything is going your way, life is good, money is plentiful, free time is always available. That means your kids have probably moved out because I don't have free time, let's be honest. Your body doesn't hurt. Your whole family loves you. Marriage is perfect. How important is the gospel to you? Is it what motivates you each day to get out of bed to ensure that the gospel is a part of your life, that it overflows from who you are and it's automatically shared with those who are around you? Or because life is good, you kind of put it to the wayside and you have no reason to think about it because there's nothing that's really concerning to you. What about when everything isn't going your way? How important is the gospel to you? What about finding yourself in a hospital bed with mere days or months to live? Or finding out that you've lost a child or a spouse in an accident when your entire income has been influenced because you got hurt at work and so you can't, you can't go to work, you need to stay in bed? or an economy that isn't doing well, so now there's no money in the bank, or maybe you're going through a divorce or friends have left you when you need them the most, and you have finally hit rock bottom. How important is the gospel to you? You see, how we answer that question not only defines who we are as a believer, but it also predefines how we're going to respond in times of both great joy and in times of trial. So despite our circumstances, the answer to the question, how important is the gospel, should never change. And if the gospel is of primary importance in our lives, then during times of joy, we rejoice and give glory to God for his good and perfect gifts. 
And if times are filled with suffering and hardships and our eyes turn to Christ because we need him. But in all times, the gospel is proclaimed because it is important. So this morning, we're gonna turn uh, to Philippians chapter one, starting in verse 12. And if you do not have a Bible, we say this every single week, but if you do not have a Bible, then please raise your hand and our ushers will get one to you. If you do not own a Bible, this is yours to take home because no matter how exciting or how mundane one of these verses in it is in God's word, it contains the gospel. And I hope that by the end of the sermon today, you will realize how important the gospel is and it will motivate you for a life that is gospel focused. So let's listen to what he has to say this morning because uh, I have nothing to say. God's word says it all. Beginning in verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Let's pray this morning. Heavenly Father, your word is filled with amazing truth. And, and Lord, I am a humble servant just desiring to communicate what is found in these verses. And so, God, would your word go forward this morning? Would you be glorified? Would eyes be fixed and pointed towards Christ? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you were to ask Paul the same question that I asked you at the beginning, how important is the gospel? How do you think that he would answer? I mean, if you take any time to read the majority of the New Testament, because he's responsible for writing that, you will see very quickly that Paul places such a high importance on the gospel. In 1 Corinthians 2, verse 2, it says, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And the entire book of Romans is written, the first seven chapters explain what doctrine is, whereas the final chapters, 8 through 16, give us the application of life in Christ as a result of the gospel. And so if Paul's letters are completely written on the importance of the gospel and it's so Christ-focused, then we should certainly take a look into his own personal life and see how he responded to trials to get a glimpse into how we should respond as well. With that being said, uh, the first point for this morning is a gospel-focused life makes opportunities out of oppression. Now, what do I mean by opportunities out of oppression? Well, verse 12, it says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Now, without further context, the what has happened to me is kind of a little bit fuzzy for us. So, contextually, what has happened to Paul? Well, while he's writing Philippians, he is in prison. He's under house arrest. And Acts 28.30 tells us that Paul lived in this house arrest for two years, and it says that it was at his own expense, which means that Paul is there under guard, and if he wanted to eat, if he wanted to see people, they needed to come and provide for his needs, and if they didn't, he could pass away. Now, not only do we see that Paul is in prison, but he's also... Um, guarded by the imperial guard or the praetorian guard or the palace guard. 
These are high-ranking officials. In fact, during this time, they were Nero's personal guards. And so we see Paul as somebody as a very important prisoner because clearly Nero doesn't want anything to do with the gospel going forward, so they put him in jail. And, and how did they guard him? Well, it's not like Paul was sitting inside of a house and then they were outside the house making sure that he didn't escape. Uh, John MacArthur said that um, he was chained to the guards and literally the guards were Paul's captive audience. If you know Paul's life and his passion for Christ, he's gonna take every opportunity that he has to share the gospel. What better way than having somebody chained to you and they can't go anywhere? Paul's circumstances aren't what we would deem something to be filled with joy. Yet, he puts into practice how important he feels the gospel is by taking every opportunity to share it. So Paul says in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul's perspective, you put me in jail, perfect. I'm gonna share the gospel with the guards. And if I wasn't in jail, what would I be doing? I'd be sharing the gospel with those that I meet. His perspective is clear. The gospel is going forward. And if you try and do something to stop it, all you're gonna do is create different opportunities for it to be shared. Think of the circumstances that I talked about at the very beginning. In good times, when your marriage is perfect, you're creating gospel opportunity as you show what it means to be the bride of Christ. When money is plentiful, are you faithfully giving to the work of the Lord because you believe that God will use it to push the gospel forward? When your family is doing well and everybody is getting along, is it because that you are spending time in God's word continually talking about the gospel with each other, sharing the gospel with others as a family, and rejoicing in what God is doing in your lives. But what about those times when money is not plentiful? Are you trusting God to provide in such a way that when people see you going through that trial, they wonder what is different and they wonder why you have joy? What about losing a family member or a friend? Do you take the opportunity at their celebration of life to share the gospel with those who are there, regardless of that person's eternal standing before God? That one is a hard one, especially if you know that that person who passed away wasn't following Christ, because as you share the gospel, if people are understanding it, they will, they will think that you're saying that you do not believe that that person is in the arms of a Savior. What about gospel proclamation as you are sharing your faith when people are calling you names? Yelling in your face, trying to have you thrown in jail or even willing to kill you, which is again, something that we don't necessarily face here and now, but we might in the future. Should it stop you from sharing the gospel? Should it be discouraging? See, the idea of pressing on and sharing the gospel during oppression isn't just a Paul thing. The Bible is rich with passion for Christ and him crucified, and seeking opportunities amongst all times to be sharing your faith. In fact, Peter says in 1 Peter 3, 13 to 15, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts, honor Christ as the Lord, as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Press on. Share the gospel at all times. 
Now back at Paul's example in verses 12 to 13, we see that he takes any opportunity that he is granted and shares the gospel. He doesn't wallow in self-pity. He doesn't cry himself to sleep. He doesn't say, oh, woe is me that I am stuck in this house and I'm unable to do anything for the Lord. He takes the opportunities that he has been given. He's acknowledging that God is sovereign and in control of all things because in verse 16, we see that he says that he is put there for the defense of the gospel. And taking the opportunity in oppression to further the reach of the gospel, it doesn't matter to him who is going to hear the truth so long as they hear it. Paul has shared this with the imperial guard. That's a pretty big deal. If, if this palace guard is there because Nero has sent them and he's in control of all things uh, within their society, think about this. Paul is responsible, uh, is, is put in prison because he is shared the gospel. And the one who's responsible for putting him in jail says, you know what? I want to make sure that he doesn't get out. So here's my personal guards. These guys have gone through lots of training. Make sure that he doesn't get out because he's been sharing the gospel. I mean, do you see the irony? Because Paul isn't afraid of Nero. It doesn't stop him from sharing the gospel because, I mean, if I was Nero, I'd want an update to see how things are going. Oh yeah, that guy. Um, yeah, you remember how he uh, placed him in jail because he was talking about Jesus? Yeah, he's still doing it. And that's what we talked about this morning. And, and Paul not only shared it with them, but verse 13 says that the gospel goes forward to all the rest. Paul's life, regardless of being chained to an inv- individual or being placed in house arrest or being free, was to take each and every opportunity that he had to share Christ because he firmly believed the importance of the gospel and its value. So what other opportunities did oppression or persecution or trial create? Verse 14, and most of the brothers having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Paul's imprisonment creates confidence in the Lord for other believers. Why? Because stories, they move us. When, when we hear of people that are being martyred for their faith, it encourages me to stand up when I just hear people calling me names. I mean, how bad is it really to be called a name when people are dying for their faith? I mean, we ought to wake up. When we hear the gospel is going forward and that lives are being changed, it really should ignite within us a passion and a desire to be a part of what God is doing, not to sit on our couches. We need to be praying for those who are being persecuted, remembering the truth that is found in Scripture. Romans 8.28 says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. And last time I checked, all things kind of means all things. It doesn't mean just blessings or just trials. It means both. Paul takes the opportunity that he has during his trial to share Christ. So what trial might you be facing today that would cause you to point people towards Christ? Now, I'm going to share a story. Some of you may have heard this story. And and it largely defines um, who I am today. And in fact, our daughter has the middle name of who this story is about as a reminder to my wife and I of God's faithfulness and his love. 
So those of you who know Pastor Trevor and Heather from Redemption Calgary North, they walked through a trial for many years and have been walking through a trial for many years that no parent would ever want to go through. I can still remember the morning that I got the text that says, you need to get on your knees and pray for hope. Something's happened. See, one morning after their daughter had a routine tonsillectomy, Heather woke up to the sound of hope aspirating in her bed. And Heather, having some medical background, immediately called 911. And in an instant, their life was turned upside down. They spent months in the ICU. And the doctors couldn't give them an answer as to what was going on. It's not like she was in the the ICU with, uh, yeah, this is what happened, and, and we know. It's like, well, I don't really know what happened. But, you know, they were certain, absolutely certain, that it soon she was going to pass away. There is no way that she could survive this. But on the slight hope that she did survive, you know what? She's just going to be a vegetable forever. She's not going to be able to do absolutely anything. They told Trevor and Heather almost every day that she would never walk, that she would never talk, and that she probably wouldn't live much longer and to prepare for the worst to happen. And during this trial, I had the front row seat to see one of my best friends and his family walk through a trial that was a living example of a faith in Christ that I cannot begin to express. They wrestled. I saw anger. I saw joy. I saw sadness. I saw uncertainty. I saw trust. I saw them ask questions. Every emotion that you can think of, I watched. And yet one thing never changed. And that was their faith in Christ. They had a heavenly perspective and knew that these trials were nothing in comparison to the glory that awaited them in Christ. And because of their faith in Christ and because it never faltered, because the gospel was of utmost importance to their family before any of this happened, it was a natural progress for them to push the gospel forward amidst the trial that they faced. How did this incredible pain lead to that gospel opportunity? They had opportunities to tell doctors about their faith in Christ, people that they would never meet unless Hope went through this ordeal. They prayed that God would heal Hopi in a way that would show the doctors the glory of God, including taking her home to be with him, and that those who didn't believe God Saw, at, saw God at work. Those who thought hope would be a vegetable, they're kind of scratching their heads right now. And this is God's grace in this story. Why? Because if you go over to the peacock's house right now, you'll see hope taking steps. With the help of somebody else, she's learning to walk. Hope can carry on a conversation with you right now. She hasn't even lost her sense of humor. My goodness, can that girl make you laugh. But she has most importantly not lost her faith in Christ. And despite the physical challenges that she faces now, being in a wheelchair and having anywhere between 60 and 70% of her brain damaged, she is still a living example of the grace of God and has followed obediently in the waters of baptism as well. That was such a blessing for my wife and I to be able to watch from across the country. So how does it motivate you? The peacocks were willing to live for Christ despite circumstances Because they had a perspective that placed a significantly higher priority in God's word and in the gospel than anything else that this world has to offer. 
despite a trial that would cause probably most of us to go and hide in a cave and never want to see anybody ever again, they fixed their eyes on their Savior because they knew that God was working all things together for their good, no matter how hard it was for them. So now let me ask you this question. How does this motivate you when you hear this story? How does reading about Paul's joy while he's in prison, having a gospel focus, change your perspective to the trials that you face today or even that those around you face today? The next story that you hear of oppression, whether it's within our church, whether you hear something on the news, what will it do to your faith and will your life be defined by a proper understanding of what the gospel is and will you respond with confidence? A gospel-focused life not only makes opportunities out of oppression, but it also shares the gospel with accuracy. Now, I'll admit, verses 15 to 18, it took me a little while to understand where Paul was going with this section. And it seems quite simple. It really does, because Philippians is no doubt one of my absolute favorite books of the Bible. Um, You can see my pages are a little bit too colorful. I probably spend a little bit too much time reading this book and I should read others. And when John and I talked about me preaching one time, I was like, I was thrilled to be speaking in Philippians. I was really excited. And yet of all the marks in Philippians, these verses had nothing. I thought I fully understand it. I thought it was simple and yet I wrestled over it many, many times I brought ideas to John, and it kept changing over and over, and lovingly he would say to me, Josh, that isn't what the text is saying. That's not what the text is saying. And then I realized I was looking far too deeply into this text rather than taking it at the face value that it actually is. And so before we move on, I want to clarify one thing that I had the most difficulty letting go of, and people that I listened to who have preached sermons on this as well um, didn't see this as well. So by God's grace, we're able to see that Paul is not talking about people who are preaching a false gospel in this passage. Albeit biblical, he talks about in Galatians, this specifically is talking about people who are preaching the true gospel with motives that are selfish. And he's also talking about people who preach the true gospel out of love. So we share the gospel accurately, not with wrong motives, so how can you preach the true gospel with, en- with envy and rivalry? Um, that confused me a little bit. And so um, rather than using my own wisdom, we're going to look to John MacArthur here. And he says, they envied Paul's giftedness, his blessing, his intellect, his effectiveness in ministry, and perhaps especially his being highly respected and beloved in the church. They may even have envied his personal encounters with the resurrected and exalted Lord Jesus Christ. Consequently, like all those motivated by envy and jealousy, they considered the apostle to be a threat to their own prominence and influence within the church. Paul's detractors used his incarceration as an opportunity to promote their own prestige by accusing Paul of being so sinful that the Lord had chastened him by imprisonment. They were arrogant enough to try to discredit someone who was being greatly used of the Lord simply to make a name for themselves. If you read ahead, you see verse 18. It it didn't work. Paul was still filled with joy that the gospel was going forward. Now, there's another motive that would be considered selfish, and this one's thanks to John Piper. Um, And we're going to use Pastor John as our example uh, because I'm the one that wrote this, so I can choose. (laughs) 
and, uh, and he's our pastor. And imagine our church, our little church in comparison to others, always being looked over by, by our town. No one new ever shows up. Another pastor in town is always invited to special dinners to pray for our city, to lead a large gathering of people, of other churches. Meanwhile, we're missed. And yet, Pastor John, you remain faithful. And as 2 Timothy 4.2 says, you preach the word, you're ready in and out of season. You remain faithful to the gospel and to the text, and you preach the truth. And one day, you are asked to be the one who is speaking at these special functions, which you gladly accept, and you preach the true gospel at this event. And many people come to know the Lord. There's a huge awakening in Christ. Yet behind the message, there's an attitude of, look at me. Look what they asked me to do. See, Pastor Joe? They asked me, not you. And look what God did. Obviously, he needed me. You see, this is selfish ambition. This is preaching the true gospel, preaching Christ out of envy and rivalry, and yet it still gives us a reason to rejoice because lives are changed. My prayer for our church is that us as leaders, the elders of this church, you as our congregation, would never become that way, would never seek to share the gospel with those wrong motives, to persevere to see the gospel shared, to see, as our banner says, lost people saved, saved people matured, mature people multiplied, all to the glory of God, not to the glory of man. So we need to share with right motives. Now, I thought defining right motives might be a little bit easier, um, and I was mistaken. In some ways it is. But how often do we still preach the gospel out of selfish ambition and we're completely unaware of it? Thinking, wow, I communicated that gospel message so well. There's no way they could have missed that. I'm the man. And that's not the motivation that we need when we're going to share the gospel. Uh, Matthew 28 19 to 20, which is where this comes from. This is the Great Commission. It says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So this is words of Christ, and I don't have his entire ministry memorized, but I'm fairly certain that I can say without a doubt that Christ never shared the gospel with a wrong motive. And so we need to observe what Christ has commanded And we must share the gospel out of love and humility. Whereas wrong motives answer the question, what can the gospel do for me? Right motives are going to answer the question, what has the gospel done for others and how can I tell them about it? Right motives acknowledge that we are placed in situations for the gospel to go forward. As it says in verse 16, that Paul was put there for the defense of the gospel. So we see in this passage alone that Paul has opportunity because he was placed under house arrest. We see that people are bold to preach the gospel because of Paul's house arrest. We also see that the gospel goes forward because those who preach the true gospel out of love, but we also see the gospel going forward because people preach the true gospel out of selfish ambition. See, God's sovereignty is at work, and Paul rejoices in those who share the gospel because of their love for Christ and their desire to see lost people saved. So we've seen wrong motives, we've seen right motives, but both of these things have something in common that I've said a few times already, and that is right doctrine. So this is a time that we've waited to answer one question until now. 
do you know what the gospel is? Or is everything that I'm saying this morning kind of just going right over your head because you don't understand it? I mean, do you fully understand the gospel so that with Paul, you can rejoice regardless of motives of the gospel going forward? That you can tell the difference between a church who is sharing the false gospel and a church that is sharing the true gospel, but just with wrong motives. There is a common belief in our society today that large numbers mean that truth is going forward and God is doing something big. And in many cases, those numbers fill me with sorrow as I watch thousands of people follow a leader that is leading them down a path of destruction, all because we are not educated enough in God's word to discern the truth from lies. Because we can't answer the question, what is the gospel? For some reason, this question kind of really freaks people out. As soon as you ask a group of believers, hey, what is the gospel? It's almost as if everybody freezes and people don't know the answer to the question. But if you're saved, you know what the gospel is. The gospel is simple and you need to be able to answer that question. It is the reason that we are saved. I'm curious, how many people at the very beginning when I said, can you define the gospel, kind of had their stomach turn a little bit in knots? Anybody bold enough to say, yeah, my, my stomach turned? Now, when I was writing this, I was struggling to put the gospel into words that were easy and simple too. Not because I don't understand what the gospel is, but I have this fear that when I share it, that somebody is not going to get it because I've made it too complicated. Paul, who wanted to preach Christ, said in 1 Corinthians 1.17, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So what is the gospel? God created man in his own image. We thought we knew better than God, and we decided to take things into our own hands. And so, therefore, a problem was created, and that problem is sin. And sin separated mankind from God. And we are all born sinners. No one is righteous. Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Bible is very clear about what happens when we sin. Romans 6.23 tells us that this sin has a cost. Sin needs to be atoned for, for the wages of sin is death. So who needs to pay for those sins? Well, if you steal somebody, somebody, if you steal something, or if you kill somebody, or if you park in the wrong spot because you don't have the handicap thing that goes on your mirror and you park where there's a little blue square on there, or you roar down the highway going 40 to 50 kilometers over the speed limit, and you get caught, who is responsible to pay that price? You are, the person who gets the ticket. If you sin, it's a debt that you owe. Therefore, what is the cost of your sin? Well, Romans 6.23, as we said, says the wages of sin is death. Whose death? Yours. You are required to pay the penalty for the sin that you've committed, not somebody else's. The fine must be paid. It is unavoidable. It is hopeless. And if the story ended there, if, if we were completely separated from God with, with no chance of redemption, that would be really sad. And there would be no purpose for us to meet here on a Sunday morning. And yet God in his grace gave us a solution, sending his son, 
Jesus Christ. And he paid the penalty for our sins because he was able to, because he was perfect. And he is the only one who ever was perfect. He came willingly. And he died on the cross and he shed his blood to cover our sins and rose again, conquering death. Ephesians 2, 4-5 says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. By grace you have been saved. Again, what is the solution? The solution is God's rich mercy. It is his great love. It is grace. And I'm convinced that today we don't fully understand what grace is. We really don't get it. Jonathan Edwards says, you contribute nothing to your own salvation except for the sin that made it necessary. When you fully understand that you play absolutely no role in your salvation except being a sinner, then grace comes alive. The gospel is a free gift from God. The question now, after hearing those things, is how will you respond In order to be saved, when God calls you, you must repent of your sin and turn to Christ. And then you need to ask yourself, how is my life going to change because of it? Uh, An analogy that I love to use for a life changed in Christ is, if you were to stand on train tracks and a train were to schmuck you pretty good and you live to tell the tale, would you look different? Absolutely you would. Things would be very different. When you encounter the living God, somebody who is more powerful than a speeding train, and you see just how amazing and how awesome he is, your life changes and people notice. You walk down the street, you look different. So how does your life change after trusting in Christ? You begin to pursue joy-filled gospel progress. Now, I want to tell you a little story that helps you kind of understand sharing the gospel out of love and urgency and not out of condemnation. And while I share this, I want you to ask yourself the question, is this how I live? Is this how I share the gospel? Do I understand its importance? Imagine you are walking down down the street, and the reason I say imagine is because it's nice summer weather out there, and we haven't had any summer weather this year at all. And as you're walking, you hear the familiar squeak of your neighbor's rocking chair as he sits on his porch. Um, My wife and I chose to name this man Mr. Fredrickson, and if you have watched the movie Up, you'll notice that he is the old grumpy man, okay? And he's always on his porch at this time of day. Why? Because it's the time of day when kids are coming home from school, and he has nothing better to do than to sip his iced tea and yell at them, get off my lawn! But as you get closer, you notice that something is a little different today. You notice a little thin stream of black smoke coming up from his house. And the moment you're on the sidewalk in front of his home, it erupts into flames. You stare in disbelief at what is happening, not simply because you see the house is burning down, because Mr. Fredrickson is sitting in his rocking chair, sipping his iced tea, and he's completely oblivious to what is happening behind him. Now, how do you respond in that situation? Do you softly say, "Uh, hey, Mr. Fred, uh, your house is burning down. I thought you should know. Okay, have a good day. Bye. And then turn around and walk away. Absolutely not. In this circumstance, 
you would be starting to yell, get off your porch against your better judgment while he's screaming at you because you're running across his nice lawn. You attempt to pull him out of his chair, off the porch and safely away from disaster. Why? Because you value his life. You don't want him to die. We think that it is loving to get to know somebody for years and years before we even dare share the gospel with them because you never know, they might run away from our friendship. Charles Spurgeon said it so well, and the quote is on the screen for you. If sinners be damned, at least let them leap over, uh, to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let not one go unwarned and unprayed for because there's urgency within the gospel and people needing to know and hear about it. So do you fully understand the gospel? Do you see what God has saved you from? Do you notice how you were dead in your trespasses, which means you were walking down a path that was leading you to utter destruction, to spend an eternity away from Christ? And in his love and his rich mercy and in his grace, he pulled you out of the pains of death? Do you really understand grace? If you do understand grace, then it should motivate you to be a part of what God is doing here in our town in Olds. And it should also motivate you that the gospel spills out of your life at every moment of the day. So what are some ways that we can be a part of the gospel going forward? Well, many months ago, we held a prayer and praise meeting in this building right here with many different churches. We set aside differences in how we worship, the songs that we sing, and even when it came down to beliefs that are secondary towards what the gospel is, we chose for that evening to set those differences aside and exalt the name of Jesus because scripture is very clear that he alone is worthy of our praise. We sat in circles. We didn't have nearly enough time to be praying for one another, but we, we prayed for what God is doing in other churches. We prayed for their needs. We prayed for leaders to be raised up. We prayed for sick and for hurting families. We prayed for pastors who are tired, for lost people to come and know Christ. It was a powerful, powerful evening, and it needs to happen more. In fact, as you heard in the announcements this morning, we have the best opportunity to be a part of another one. Now, we as Redemption, we hosted the first one, and it was my prayer that other churches would take on leading more of these community-wide prayer and praise nights where we would set aside our differences and exalt the name of Jesus. And so, October 19th at 6.30 p.m., it is a Saturday evening, we have the opportunity to gather with First Baptist Church and other churches as well to exalt the name of Jesus in worship and to get on our knees before God, asking for the boldness that we need to do as Paul did in the Philippines, with right motives and with truth to share the gospel. If you want a reason to be able to rejoice with Paul that Christ is being proclaimed, I urge you, make this evening and the ones to come that we will be having a priority. How else does Paul respond? Well, he rejoices in the proclamation and the growth of the gospel, regardless of motives, and so we should too. So a scenario, look at next weekend. Say next weekend that we hear that a gospel-teaching church within the town of Olds, by God's grace, grows by 100 people. 
Not our church, somebody else's church. Again, that preaches the true gospel. And they grow by 100 people. Well, what should that do? Well, as Paul says in verse 18, it says, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. We should rejoice, celebrate, thank the Lord for the gospel going forward. Praise God for calling people to be a part of his family. Because when we begin to more fully understand grace and the true gospel, it becomes more and more satisfying. And we start to desire more and more that others know. Our hearts begin to change so that when people on the streets hearing the gospel come and say to us, stop shoving that down my throat, we can turn to them in grace and say, but if you only knew what Jesus did for you, if we find ourselves in Paul's position in the near future where we are in prison because of sharing the gospel, our priority doesn't change. We are gospel focused. The urgency in our lives for the gospel needs to change. We must begin to rejoice when others are being bold to share the gospel amidst persecution, trial, and opposition. When we or others face those trials that are unimaginable, what we know about God and what we believe about the gospel will help us face them with gospel perspective. Now, so that you don't think that there's just some guy up here telling you this story, I want to share a story. Um, this is a more personal story, something that happened to both my wife and I two years ago. And it helps us to see how living a gospel-focused life will naturally result in gospel progress, and you won't be able to do anything to stop it because you love the Lord. For months before our son was born, we were heavily involved in church. Um, I was playing on the worship team. Sam was involved in women's ministry. We were reading our Bibles every single day. Our love for the Lord was growing and growing, and we were able to share the gospel. I worked with a whole bunch of guys that, trust me, they needed the Lord. And, and I told Sam stories every single day that I had to come home and I was like, I, it is my goal to share the gospel with every person in this company before I leave. And I missed one person because he quit and I didn't know. It really sucks. But our life was focused on the gospel. And so that evening when my wife came up to me and said, something isn't right, I need to go to the hospital and I need to go now, I was like, okay, Lord, what are you going to do? And so I had to call a friend up who was at a prayer and praise meeting and it was on a Wednesday evening. I still remember and I called him. I was like, dude, get in your car and get over here now. It's like, I got to go to the hospital now. He's like, all right, I'm on my way. And he made the 20 minute drive in 10 and thank you, Mark, if you're listening. And uh, so grateful for him serving us in that way. And so we took our, not our time. Oh man, we sped to the hospital. We had to get there fast. And we walked into the hospital, went up to the third floor, and we got up there and I realized, oh, I forgot something in the van. I needed all these medical forms that we had to fill out because we had been there the night before. And so I went back down the elevator. We had arrived at 8.30. I was gone no less than five minutes. When I got back up there, we had midwives and yet the doctors were already called in because something was wrong. Our son should have had a resting heart rate at 130 beats per minute. And it was racing at over 230 beats per minute. And, and the result of what is called fetal tachycardia is because something is wrong with either Declan or something is wrong with Sam. And we were completely oblivious. All we, all we knew is that something was wrong. The doctor was called in. We need to get this baby out now. We arrived at 8.30. Declan was out in two hours. 
and it was, it was a crazy circumstance for me to be a part of. They said that if Sam was only having an epidural for the emergency C-section, that I would be able to be in the room with her, but if she was knocked out, I would have to sit on the outside. And I learned very quickly that this hospital was not very good at communication because they sat me in a chair and down the hallway over on this side was two operating rooms. I only thought there was one, okay? So you can imagine my surprise when a nurse is walking out with a big, huge bucket filled with blood and just walks right by me. And immediately what I'm thinking is there's no way that my wife, there's no way there's that amount of blood in my son so there's no way that my wife could survive losing that amount of blood. And in my study before that, I had been reading in the Psalms, specifically Psalm 34, verse 1. It says, I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will continually be in my mouth. That was my first prayer. Okay, Lord, they've told me that I could lose my son. Something's wrong. I could lose my son. I could lose my wife. I could lose both. I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will continually be in my mouth. And then it moved to Psalm 63. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. And I held those things so dear. And it felt like an eternity for this nurse with these buckets of blood to walk by maybe 15 feet, if that. And it felt like forever. And not five seconds after she had gone through the door, the midwife came back in and said, okay, we're ready to move your wife into the operating room. Oh, okay, Lord, you tested me. Thank you. I, I'm still going to praise you because I, I, I still don't know what's going to happen because, I mean, she hasn't even gone under yet, so that could still be a reality for us. And I, and I had to fix my eyes on Christ. Now, to continue this story, we spent the better part of a week in the NICU because the doctors needed to run test after test after test because something was wrong, something was wrong, and yet, they had to run some of the tests two times. Why? They couldn't find anything. I honestly believe that it was a circumstance that caused me to fix my eyes on Christ. And what did it do? Well, it made an opportunity out of oppression. It made an opportunity out of a trial that my wife and I went through. Because at the very end of the week, the doctors had to come into our room and they had to say, yeah, so um, we've done a whole bunch of tests we don't know why, but your son is okay. And where was my heart at? Let me tell you. Let me tell you about Jesus. It's his grace and his mercy that has made this possible. Why? Because there's so many people that are praying for this little boy and for my wife. And to this day, there's still nothing wrong with our son. God's grace. There should be, but there isn't. Is your life focused on the gospel that in circumstances like that, it is going to naturally result in the gospel going forward at all times. When we have placed a high importance on the gospel, we will rejoice when we hear it's going forward in different ways, even if there are ways that we don't necessarily agree with, and we will be able to confidently say with Paul, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and that I rejoice. So when you leave this building this morning, when you face a trial, when you see that somebody's house is burning down behind them and they're completely oblivious and they need the Lord, I'm going to ask you those two questions again. How important is the gospel? 
And what are you going to do about it? Let's pray.